Wednesday here on the Inside the Pylon Quick Kicks podcast. Chuck's out of flying solo. Mark Schofield wrapping up a little bit of scouting for the upcoming week ahead. Fortunately, I am joined by my partner in crime, Dave Archibald, also from Inside the Pylon. And we're going to be talking a little bit about coaches, the topic that always seems to come up about this point in the year where you start saying, okay, how are things shaping up for next year? Who's going to be the first coach that's gone this year? Dave, welcome in. It's good to talk to you again. Great to be on, Chuck. What's, uh, what was the genesis of uh, the piece that you put together for us this week? So Dan Hatman, who is a ITP contributor as well as the uh, founder and director of the Scouting Academy, he was posing some questions on the ITP Slack about head coaching hires. And I had done a piece back in January, so I had some data. We started talking about different ways of looking at head coaches and head coaching success. And Dan suggested looking at the Las Vegas sets uh, win over-unders at the beginning of the year, where you can bet on like uh, Denver Broncos to win more than nine games or Jacksonville Jaguars to win under seven games. Always go under with Jacksonville. I learned that the hard (laughs) way this year. Oh, I know. But uh, they, uh, so, I mean, that's one of the ways that we thought about looking at the issue because one of the ways that people evaluate coaches is before the year, they have sets of expectations about the teams and then see how does the team meet those expectations. Okay. So what did you find as you started digging into these numbers and uh, how it related to uh, the perception of coaches throughout the league? There definitely seems to be a, a relationship. So when I looked at the individual seasons where the coaches had greatly exceeded the Las Vegas over-unders, that had a high correlation with the guys who win NFL Coach of the Year. So I, I charted this back to 2001, so that's 15 years. And nine of those 15 years, it was the team that exceeded uh, their projected win total by the most. And then in five of the other years, it was within one win of the most exceeding team. So that was a pretty dramatic finding there. And that makes sense. You know, you think a team's going to win uh, seven games and they win 11 games and that gets credited to the coach oftentimes. Well, here's a question for you on that, and this is probably starting to get towards uh, discussing the holy grail of football analysis. But obviously, as you mentioned, a lot of times when when a team outperforms expectations, it's because, you know, we we often say, oh, you know, they they did a great job coaching. They put their players in a position to win. I, I guess my question is when you start, and obviously you've been looking at football a long time, how much do you actually think, you know, is related to that? And how much, you know, sometimes it's look just, you know, those random bounces that you have or, you know, one player somehow having a career year, not because of anything coaches did, but just because, you know, as Mark and I often talk about the context, sometimes, look, you're just in the right place in your life where you're able to do that. There's all kinds of weird stuff that's not related to coaching. Have you been able to kind of figure any of that out? Or are we pretty much still at square one as far as trying to get through that? Yeah, I mean, there's you're talking only a 16-game season, right? So a couple bounces here, there, a key injury, and uh, that can definitely affect things. And 
I think that's something that I saw uh, a couple examples that I highlighted in the article. The Texans run a pretty good run, you know, at the early part of this decade with Matt Schaub there and Gary Kubiak as head coach. They made the playoffs a couple times. And then in 2013, the wheels totally fell off. I think they won their first two games. They lost their last 14 games in a row. <laughs> they uh, match up through in a, a pick six in like five straight games. I mean, they had just crazy awful games and they underperformed their uh, expected win total by uh, it was seven and a half games, which was the uh, largest in the entire sample. And Gary Kubiak got fired. Well, fast forward to last year. The Denver Broncos hire him, and he wins the Super Bowl. And uh, so, I, and the other example I highlighted was uh, in Philadelphia, where Andy Reid was very successful for a long time, and he had a down year in uh, I, I forget the actual 2011 or 2012. They fire him. He, he went four and 12, I think, after having made the playoffs, you know, several times. Went four and twelve. They fire him. They bring in Chip Kelly, and three years later, they fire Chip Kelly, and now they're bringing in the next best thing they can get to Andy Reid. Andy Reid's old offensive coordinator, Doug Peterson. So, I think what we see is that if teams overreact to a one-year underperformance or overperformance, that's probably not. Uh, it's not the best indicator of the coach. One thing that always struck me as I started to play football myself, obviously I was a, I was a soccer player all through high school. I didn't play a down a practice of uh, football until I got to the college level. One of the things that struck me right off the bat, even just in practices, were the limited number of reps that you're able to get and just how a simple mistake on one of those reps that may be one out of a hundred times ends up happening because you only have two or three reps. It ends up happening in a practice or in a game can end up determining an outcome. And I think, you know, one thing I always try to keep in mind when I'm looking at anything football related is just how small the sample size is because and I'll, I'll give you an example from, uh, you know, when I was playing in college, we played university of Pennsylvania on a windy day uh, up in Hanover, New Hampshire. I had a kickoff in the second half. We were kicking into the wind. I kind of duffed it to begin with, but all of a sudden this huge gust of wind comes. The kickoff went like 30 yards. I got benched after that and I deserved it because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a great kick, but you sit there and you say, look, this strange confluence of factors led to that. It can be the same thing when you're even looking at coaches, receivers, or anyone else stuff that, you know, again, those, those fluke occurrences that have a big impact on a game and coincidentally then a season. Yeah, I mean, you look at, you know, a couple of turnovers here or there. Like in the Super Bowl last year, one of the crazy plays that no one talks about, a, a punt that was short, and then the uh, the gunner tried to hold up and ended up going the other way for like a 50-yard return. I mean, stuff, crazy stuff happens. There's only about like 150 plays in a football game, and out of those, you know, a handful can swing it all the time. Where do you think in terms of being able to properly evaluate a coach's impact, where do you think the areas 
of greatest research need to be to try to figure out what separates coaching impact from player impact, or can you not do it? I think it's very difficult. And one of the things that I've tried to do looking at this and that I plan to continue to do is, you know, taking a look at a real high level. So um, I've collected data on the background of coaches. I, I did a piece in January where I looked at the success of coaches that came from, you know, had they been a head coach before? Had they been an offensive coordinator before? Did they come from college and then you start getting buckets that are a little bigger, and maybe you can draw some conclusions for that. I also want to cross-reference that with stuff like point totals. So does an offensive coach give you more uh, scoring, maybe at the expense of defense, whereas a defensive coach gives you something different? And then once you have kind of a you know high-level picture, maybe with some of those aggregate statistics, I think you're still pretty much drilling down into kind of anecdotal data because, you know, we're really looking at, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to, to say if, if a quarterback who didn't do well under the old coach suddenly does well, is that because the new coach is really good at developing the quarterback or was that just the quarterback himself developing, or maybe it was an assistant coach that was the key factor there and the head coach didn't have that much to do with it. It's really hard to pinpoint that, you know, once you start drilling down into stuff like that. Dave, did you get a look at uh, Richard Sermon's piece for the Players' Tribune that he put up in uh, the last week or two, maybe? About... um, we thought like the best cornerbacks are and uh yeah and about how it was i think it was titled like here's why you don't understand cornerback or something like that (laughs) and one thing that i found interesting going through that is he would talk about you know look sometimes you get into a situation in a game where all of a sudden you know one team's running hurry up and realizes that the slot corner on the other team is completely gassed and they just start targeting that guy over and over just because they know and they're able to identify it. And it's one of those things where, look, a receiver on the field may end up picking up on that, might end up leading to a successful drive. Coach isn't necessarily calling the plays. You probably got a quarterback audibling, and yet somehow you end up with, okay, you know, team scores you know, a touchdown that way, and maybe you end up with two of those. And all of a sudden, maybe you have credit being given to a coordinator or a coach for something that a player noticed on the field and simply relayed into his cornerback. And it, it, those types of things, it's just, you know, I find it so hard to try to figure out where the line is and trying to contextualize all that. It, it's, it just seems so difficult to try to assign value to any one player, coach, or per, you know, personnel, per, whoever it may be, just because of little things like that that I didn't even think of before I read the article. Well, but I mean, in that case, too, you have to look at um, did the the quarterback at that point has the ability to audible and pick the right plays. Right. So So who taught him how to audible, who taught him to, you know, understand how to attack the defenses that way and who empowered him to to do that? Because some teams, you know, don't let their. QBs audible as much as others and the problem is you know those of us on the outside which is you know pretty much everybody even Bill Belichick says he has trouble evaluating players on other teams because he doesn't know what their coach to do and he's Bill Belichick 
So what hope do we have? <laughs> I don't know. I think we could probably outcoach him, right? <laughs> Maybe in like tennis, and he'd probably still beat us at that. Oh, I bet. I bet he's the sort of guy who can figure out like the couple things he needs to do. If you had to pick one sport to go up against Belichick in, what would it be? Team sport. Like, and I'm coaching? Yeah, if you're coaching against Belichick in any team sport, what is it? Oh, that's tough. I I guess baseball, because the impact of the coach is less, so I might have a shot. Does gymnastics technically count as a team sport for like the Olympics? Because that there's less tactically involved where I feel like I won't be outthought as much and maybe I could do more on the technique side. But bowling, is that a team sport? Can the yeah. the tactic I think I could master the tactic there. Yeah, I think I'm I'm gonna stick with gymnastics for mine. Uh maybe maybe swimming relays or something like that, but I don't think I want to see him in like basketball. Like I feel like him as a basketball coach would just be. I don't want to go up against that. So, uh, what no. what what else you got? We got about a minute or two left. Anything else uh, as we wrap this up? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna take this opportunity to uh, to throw down the gauntlet at our Pylon U comrades Jeff Fair and Shane Alexander because in the last podcast they talked about how Baylor hasn't played anybody this year and they played my rice owls and we may be zero and six, but we're somebody. Well, and, and, and nothing was a bigger O than that game against uh, Baylor, you know, well, actually it was a pretty close, pretty close game for a little while there. You know, you had me for about, what was it? Three quarters or so before it opened up. I think we covered. Well, I mean, what was the spread? Let's put this in context. I mean, cover, uh, like, covering, I think, was probably like within 30 or 31, I'm guessing. Yeah, it was It was in that neighborhood. In that ballpark. So I'll give you credit. And uh, to Jeff and Shane, gauntlet has been thrown down by Mr. Archibald now. That is all the time we've got for the day. Dave, appreciate you joining me. Great to be on. Dave Archibald from Inside the Pylon. We're done for the day today. Tomorrow, we got Plays the Week Friday. Kicker Friday's coming up. We're talking a little Steven Goskowski then. So make sure you stick around. Catch you later on the Quick Kicks podcast. Mm-hmm.